You ready to party like it's 1999? Yes. <laughs> I don't know how I was partying back then, but I'm sure it wasn't I'm sure it wasn't to uh, the degree that I probably should have been. Yeah, in uh, in 1999, I was um, was 10, uh, so I wasn't doing a lot of partying, uh, but I was seeing a lot of movies. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, what a year for fucking movies. It was a good one. A lot of choices. A lot of good choices. So many choices. All right. In that spirit, how about it? Let's start. Let's do it. Do it. We are Necromancer. And I have sound right. effects on yours that I can do. No, no, I'm just making this with my mouth. You know, oh, wow. um, it's it's all of the instruments are inside me. I'm a one man garage band. But when I'm not doing that, I'm also being a rom com fan. And what are you, Brett? Well, Shira, I am a horror movie fan. And why do we find ourselves sitting across from each other like this? Well, we like to make each other watch movies from our respective genres. And then we take those movies and we remix them. We'll turn the rom-com into a horror and the horror into a rom-com. And we see what comes out the other side. And today our theme is movies made in 1999. Yeah, uh, probably one of the best years for movies, I think. It, it would probably make a top five list for sure. I think, you know, there's, there's a few different sort of quote unquote best years for movies, but I feel like it changes according to what movies you're into. But coincidentally for horror and for rom-com, uh, 1999 was a landmark year. Yeah, uh, like I said, going through all the choices that I had, I had some, I had some good ones. So it was hard oh to God. settle on just one. It was so hard to settle, and I don't know about you, but my mind was at where I was thinking, okay, do I choose a really popular one that everybody knows? Uh, or do I choose a sleeper hit, like one, for instance, Blast from the Past, where it's a movie I oh, really no. like, but not as many people know about it. Um, if we do a bunker episode, we can pull that one to the front of the, the list. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been on my mind for sure. Uh, and so I, I struggled with that. And then I ended up choosing Notting Hill because to me, it just epitomizes the 90s rom-com. And it could be, you know, the sign of the beginning of the end because, you know, pretty much right around 2000, you started to get all these rom-coms are over, rom-coms are dead uh, articles. So it, it could have been, you know, the top, 1999 might've been the top of the roller coaster for rom-coms. 
and Notting Hill is why. <laughs> Uh, people may wonder, why didn't I choose 10 Things I Hate About You? Well, the reason why we didn't is because we actually recorded an episode zero where we talked about 10 Things I Hate About You. Maybe when we have more fans, you guys will just beg us to release it anyway, uh, or we will re-record it. But I, I had to put 10 Things I Hate About You on the shelf uh, for this episode. Uh, but what about you? What was hard about choosing a horror movie? Uh, I mean, I, I would go in the same kind of camp as, you know, there's there's the sort of smaller movies that I like to pick, or do I go with a classic? Uh, always a tough choice for this podcast. But um, Stir of Echoes, I know is it's an interesting movie and it's got a lot of good high quality talent behind it and i had not seen it since 1999 and when i was 13 years old in 1999 it scared the bejesus out of me <laughs> and so I, I was curious like i wonder if it holds up and yeah so i guess we'll talk about that I would say that if you are a Kevin Bacon completionist and you like Kevin Bacon fan service, uh, yeah, you should totally see this movie because there's tons of it. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I ain't mad at it. I was, I was here for every Kevin Bacon working shirtless scene in the movie oh, yeah. um and the whole so third was, act he's basically shirtless oh yeah no the, the whole third act um it, it was basic yeah it, it was all kevin bacon fan service um yeah it's interesting i think we both picked movies that we saw in 1999 and then didn't see afterwards and kind of tried to answer the same question which is did they hold up <laughs> Yeah, I'm very curious to know, because I think you got a little inkling of how I felt about Notting Hill. Um, well, do we want to do we want to <laughs> just dig into Notting Hill first? Sure. Do we want to uh, take a trip down Portobello Road? <laughs> uh, yeah, I will make one little note, which is I may call this movie Notting Tin Hill a few times in my in my discussion with you because for some reason I just want to call this movie Notting Tin Hill. I don't know why. Oh, like Paddington? I guess. I don't know what it is, but Notting Tin Hill just seems more natural to me. So if I say that, I apologize. It reminds me of Nottingham, like the sheriff of Nottingham. Oh, yeah. Nottington Hill. Nottington Hill Manor. <laughs> It's, I guess, all those. I, yeah, it's it's British. It's like a British thing to have. It, it sounds too short to be British. Also, it's interesting that this movie characterizes Notting Hill as being, you know, kind of culturally mixed, a little bit working class, when it's not like that at all. Like, Notting Hill is very posh, and you have to be very wealthy to live around there. Yeah, I figure if you have a bookstore that's dedicated to only travel books, you're probably in a well-off neighborhood. Right. 
So before we, we just dive right into the discussion, one of the reasons why I chose this movie is because it's written by Richard Curtis, who you know has a pretty high batting average among rom-com writers. He did Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh, <laughs> he did um, Love Actually, which is a very oh, yeah. divisive rom-com. I feel like every other month an article comes out about why love actually is problematic or why the person who said it is problematic is wrong and love actually is great and and so richard curtis is kind of i wouldn't go so far as to call him controversial it's not like he's like gasper noe or something right. um but, but he he's kind of a divisive figure in the rom-com world because a lot of his movies are really commercially successful, but I don't know. Maybe it's because it seems like Richard Curtis is obsessed with aloof American women that it doesn't always track. Like that's not a problem or conflict that I relate to at all. Oh, he also did Bridget Jones Diary, which is oh, yeah. a lot more reliable, <laughs> relatable. Uh, about a boy, right? That's one of the big ones. About a boy is... Is that him or just Hugh Grant? So that it that one I think I don't know if that's written by Richard Curtis but it's based on a book by Nick Hornby and okay. it's I think the first film with Nicholas Holt who's kind of a big oh. deal now. Yeah, I've never that's seen that why, one either. That's why I said uh, I think I mentioned him in a previous episode and I said I'm about that boy. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think I texted you this before. I, this might be my first Hugh Grant movie. Um, I'm sure I've seen him in other movies, but it's the difference between like a Jim Carrey movie and a movie with Jim Carrey in it. Um, I don't think I've ever seen right. a Hugh Grant movie. So it was interesting to see what all the hype is about. Right. And, you know, he and Julia Roberts at, in 1999, they are kind of well-established leads within rom-coms. Uh, and Hugh Grant has already kind of established this character, which, you know, we've talked about different time, different types of romantic heroes. There's your classic alpha hero. There's your uber-competent guy. Uh, there's your cool guy like Nick Charles. Uh, and then there is what I like to call the cinnamon roll, which is the idea is that he is so sweet, too pure for this world. He's just like a gooey, sugary cinnamon roll. And he's not the alpha guy, uh, but he's not the beta guy. His main defining characteristic is that he's sweet and gentle. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the shtick that we're supposed to be getting from Hugh Grant in these movies. But I feel like it, he's he's developed into a much more interesting actor when he started kind of playing against that type and right. acting more caddish, I guess. Um, but it sounds like you didn't fall for the cinnamon roll act. No, not at all. This would be like a cinnamon roll if the cinnamon roll just fell apart anytime you picked it up to eat it because it and had like, raisins was so awkward Ooh. <laughs> um i yeah i was wondering because i think you've mentioned like beta hero before i was mm -hmm. trying to think of other beta heroes from rom-coms that i might know and i thought of like woody allen 
But then yes. I thought he's more neurotic. Like Hugh Grant in this movie is just he's just dumb. <laughs> he's just dumb. He just he says a lot of dumb things and he he just acts dumb throughout the whole movie. And then I was thinking, um, I mean, I know these aren't rom-coms, but the new Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland, he plays that kind of awkwardy sort of, you know, like, oh, I'm going to say something. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but now I'm self-conscious about saying that. So now I'm going to say like three things that I probably shouldn't say, and I'm just going to dig myself into a deeper hole. But the, the thing, the difference between Peter Parker, Tom Holland, Peter Parker, and Hugh Grant in this movie is like, Hugh Grant just seems like he's almost doing it on purpose because he thinks it's charming. Whereas Peter Parker is like, shit, I probably should be doing a better job of wooing my love interest right now. Well, he's also a teenager. So he's expected to be awkward and bad at it. Right. Right. I probably, yeah, I probably could come up with better beta heroes if I was more experienced in the genre, but I think I I don't know. Peter Parker, that's, that's my boy. I'm about that boy. (laughs) I feel like the whole, that whole type of beta hero is sort of this idea that he hasn't shed his boyish innocence in a sense. uh, And that's supposed to be endearing or charming. Um, But I, it really hinges on you being into what Hugh Grant is putting out there. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I now as an adult looking at Hugh Grant, uh, I'm not as charmed by it. Uh, I'm a lot more appreciative of Julia Roberts, I think, than I've been in the past because it's, you know, I think that she had reached such peak popularity at 1999 that people were simply tired of seeing her face everywhere. Uh, I think I brought up that I was watching Notting Hill for the podcast with a friend. And she said, "Ugh, I didn't even go see it because I was just so tired of seeing Julia Roberts everywhere. You know, Uh, so her real life kind of mirrors the character. And 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 she she doesn't she doesn't do a bad job. But yeah, Hugh Grant's performance doesn't age as well. All right. So tell us tell us their story. Tell us their story, Brett. Uh, let's get into it. So William Thacker owns an in, uh, independent bookstore in Notting Hill, London. And his she- wife... Sorry. <laughs> what is? What did you say? I said um, she, because that's the song that plays in the beginning. Oh, yeah. I couldn't remember. Like, I can't... I probably should have written, written them down, but I can't remember a lot of the song choices off the... T- you know, So memory, cheesy. But a lot of them were sort of dated, to say the least. Um, so, yeah, his wife has recently left him, and he has a very eccentric roommate named Spike. And one day in his bookstore, he notices a, pertin, a, a person who looks a lot like Anna Scott, who is basically one of the most super duperest famous actresses um, ever. Uh, And then when Will discovers it really is her, he awkwardly mumbles his way through some book recommendations for her. Uh, She leaves, and then moments later in the street, Will accidentally spills an orange juice on her, and he invites her to his house to change, 
and it's awkward and weird, but it's rom-com-y. So, of course, she takes him up on it. So she goes to the house. She changes. Uh, of course, the only outfit she has is, like, this sexy little number. Uh, so, you know, she goes from being sort of plain Jane to Anna Scott. Uh, and then she leaves. And credits. That's the end of the movie. Thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs> uh, but wait. Uh, that's not really the end. She does come back for one of her bags that she left behind, and impulsively, she kisses him. Whoa! Like, that was a crazy moment. I like that moment. Um, I like that she kisses him. Right, yeah, it was so cool. Just the whole, it was very unexpected, and it was, like, sweet, but, like, forbidden in a way. Like, it, it was really good. Uh, she later invites Will to visit her at the Ritz Hotel, but he is mistaken for a reporter and ushered into a press junket for Anna's new film and must pretend to interview her. The magazine he chooses to represent is Horses and Hounds, a very British, I don't know if that's a real magazine, but it sounds very British and like it could be real. <laughs> Um, they switch between whispering, flirting, and awkward interview while, I think it's her publicist, but her publicist enters and exits the room. Anna asks to be his date to his sister's birthday party that evening, uh, where Will invites her, and she takes she takes him up on it, and she, she gets on rather well with Will's friends and sister. And seemed who and the sister loves Anna Scott, by the way, like really loves Anna Scott. Uh, and Anna Scott seems to envy their ordinary lives. They play a game of who has the most depressing life, and Anna gives a very surprising, very heartfelt, very moving uh, depiction of how it must suck to be a famous star, but. Then it's revealed that she's acting, and Hugh Grant has the most depressing life, so he gets the brownie. Uh, the next night, they go on a date, and at a restaurant, they overhear a group of men talking dirty and dissing Anna. Will remonstrates with them. Uh, uh, so yeah, I basically took this. I basically took this uh, this little synopsis from Wikipedia and then added my own little spices in, and I learned mm -hmm. remonstrates today. I, I learned oh. that word. Ooh, fancy! It's yeah, basically to like protest, you know, which you can get from the context. But I thought it's that a was very neat. strong finger wag. Yeah. So yeah, a very British. Uh, very British kind of protesting. Uh, so Will Will wags his finger at them, but as they go to leave, Anna steps in for one last word and says that they have some small wee-wees. Uh, so Anna invites him to her hotel room, but their plans change when Will discovers that her movie star boyfriend, played by Alec Baldwin... His head is humongous, by the oh, way. I yeah. <laughs> Compared to Julia... Like, you know, people dog on Julia Roberts for having a huge mouth, but you put her next to Alec Baldwin, his head looks like a bobblehead next to hers. Yeah, and uh, he's he's sort of got... He doesn't quite have, like, that ultra thin babyish look that he had but he's not maybe quite as uh well rounded out that he is now not that he's big but you know he's he, he's older he, and 
It's not Beetlejuice thin, but it's not like Jack Donaghy 30 Rock. Right. Uh, so Will, who didn't even know that Anna had a boyfriend, uh, is basically pretending to be room service. And uh, it turns out the boyfriend surprised Anna with this. And so oh, hijinks ensue. Will is obliged to pretend to be a hotel worker in order to avoid detection. And nice little joke in there about how he's honored to be taking care of Alec Baldwin's trash. So Will's friends try to help him get over his disappointment, and they set him up on a series of increasingly disastrous dates, including a very charming Emily Mortimer. Uh, Love another, her. Yes, very good. Another 30 Rock alumni. But he finds it impossible to forget Anna. And just as he's sort of like maybe about to kind of move on. I mean, he's, he still can't get with Emily Mortimer because he likes Anna, but one day she surprises Will at his doorstep and she needs a place to hide from a tabloid sex tape scandal. Uh, and it's very sad because she describes the sex tape and how it was like not really filmed with her knowledge. And she all got this. a perfect blued. Yeah, big time. She, uh, it, it's a little creepy and it's very sad. And so she's crying and he's got to comfort her and she apologizes for the hotel incident, telling Will that her relationship with Alec Baldwin is sort of in the past. Uh, and so they enjoy spending time together and discover their shared interests, including Will's print of Marc Chagall's 1950 painting La Marie. Is that, I don't know if that's how you say it. Um, it's an important painting. It's very important. Um, so then, ooh, they sleep together that night, but their bliss is short-lived when the paparazzi tipped off by Will's housemate, Spike, besiege Will's house and get pictures of him, Anna, and Spike, who is dressed in just his skivvies. Uh, and so furious Anna blames Will for the situation, declares that she regrets their time together and leaves. Uh, so now we have a moment where entire seasons pass and Will. I did like that sequence. It's a neat little sequence for sure. It's, it's well shot. Um, and so Will basically just remains miserable at dinner with his friends. He discovers that Anna is back in London making a film. So he visits her uh, at the location that they're shooting at, and Anna sees him and invites him past security so that he can watch the filming with the intention of them talking privately afterwards. And also, it's a, a fancy movie, which he sort of refers to earlier in the movie, so it's a nice little callback, like she took him up on this career advice. Uh, but I thought there was a missed opportunity because there were horses in the movie, and there could have been like a horses and hounds callback. I thought that that was kind yeah, of yeah. They say they saved the horses and hound callback for the end of the movie. Oh, maybe I will talk about the end of the movie. Holy smokes! Ugh. So Will overhears her dismiss him to a co-star and leaves without further contact. The next day, Anna comes to the bookshop with a wrapped gift and apologizes, explaining that she didn't want to truthfully discuss her private life with a very indiscreet co-star. Uh, so she gives him one of the ultimate rom-com speeches, asking to be together, uh, just a girl in front of a boy, and The he... most parodied rom-com line of all time. Oh, I can believe it. Yeah, I, I knew about this line way before I was even thinking of watching this movie. 
She uh, plays it well, though. Like, for the actual moment, Julia plays it well. I was totally into it, for sure. Uh, she, I think Julia Roberts acts circles around Hugh Grant in this movie. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, the movie should end here. She gives a great sort of, like, reaching out to him, offering him the olive branches, and he... he says no he's British. he fucks it up so and then we have like a whole nother freaking 20 25 minutes of this movie oh my god this movie uh, is too long by about half an hour and the original cut brett was like uh, three hours long it was oh even god, longer no. i can't even i can't even believe the the people who made this movie. How how could you come up with three hours of story? That's like um, a new leaf, right? Elaine May's A New Leaf. The original cut was three hours and then someone edited it down to 145. And that was, that was a, a good saint. one for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Will meets his friends and his sister in a restaurant and he opens uh, or with the gift, which is the original La Marie painting, the original one not some cheap knockoff or poster of it this ain't no guitar in the back seat of his car <laughs> uh and so they act support i mean this is a nice funny little scene too they act supportive of him sort of half-heartedly going like yeah you made the right decision you turned her down but then spike shows up and they cue him in on the fact that he basically just dumped anna scott who is not only a mega movie star and gorgeous, but also like really compatible with Will. Uh, so Will declares him a daft prick. Will admits his mistake. They race across to, to Anna's hotel where they learn she's checked out. So then they find out that she's at a press conference. So they race to the press conference. And then Will arrives to hear Anna's publicist tell the crowd that Anna will be taking a year off. And tonight is her very last night in the UK. So, Will, again, pretending to be a reporter, admits he made the wrong decision, and he asks a series of awkwardly obvious romantic questions, and she responds with charm. And so after exchanging a few subtle glances with Will, Anna announces that she will be staying in, Brin in Britain, quote-unquote, indefinitely, and the press is abuzz, and they suddenly realize that Will is the guy from the the big scandal thing and the staying over the night and stuff. So they all go nuts. And then there's a final couple scenes of Anna and Will marrying. They attend a Hollywood red carpet event. And then they spend some quiet time in the park on from their first date. And Anna is now pregnant. Babies ever after, as we call yeah. it in the business. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. You, you, you rom-com people have so many terms for everything. I feel like people in horror have terms, too. Yeah, that's true. I just don't do enough online I I feel like one of the reasons, too, why romance, particularly um, romance novels, relies a lot on particular keywords is so it's easy for the fans to say, this is what I want, this is what I don't want. Like, I want enemies to lovers. I don't want right. babies ever after. Uh, I don't want marriage in secret. I, you know, you you use the tropes as a common language to talk about, you know, to use the shorthand of what you like uh, in romance. And 
Personally, I'm not a fan of babies ever after. Sometimes I think it's really cute. Like when um, in Job We Met, when the kids come to visit the great uncle and he tells them how he knew that their parents are like, that's cute because right. it, you know, makes it generational. And, and, but if it's just to satisfy people's desire to see this fictional couple have a baby, um, Brett's rolling his eyes. That's exactly how I feel too. Yeah. But uh, one quick thing, this movie did remind me of job. We met because job we met is really going for that ultimate sort of final scene. Mm-hmm. And they're really making they're they're making some some big stretches in that movie, which could just be like a cultural thing. But yeah, this movie, I mean, it has an ending, but then it really goes for that one big final moment, which I get because she's a film star and it's at a press conference, which is also like a callback to earlier in the movie. So I, I get the structure of the final scene, but again, I was ready for the movie to end. On Julia Roberts. It's two hours and five minutes. Two hours and five minutes is way too long for a rom-com. And I think we didn't need as many breaks between them together and then Will by himself. I felt like that didn't work. I'll tell you why I think it was so important to, I mean, I presume, unless Richard Curtis wants to write me and say, you're wrong, Shira, that the reason why he wanted to do this press conference scene is because in a very famous older romance movie, Roman Holiday, Uh, The movie famously ends uh, at a press conference where Audrey Hepburn is a princess and she's being interviewed by the press. And in that moment in the press conference, it's revealed to her that this man that she fell in love with over the course of an evening is actually a reporter. And then he asks her questions that have double meanings. Um, But it's such an emotional and beautiful scene. It's really well earned. And I feel like I, I, as a fellow rom-com writer, I fall in love with these little scenes and things. And you, you think, oh, maybe I want to pay homage to this and I want to just do it in my own way. I think that he's trying to pay homage to that scene uh, and it doesn't quite work. Similarly, how I think in Leap Year, they try to mimic some of the cute banter uh, from, I, I feel like it's drawn from the movie Moonstruck, where Cher and Nick Cage have this banter where she's like, you're a wolf. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not. But they're, oh, yeah. a beast, I feel like. Right. In Leap Year, he's a beast. He's a beast. So yeah, instead of a wolf, he's a beast. So I think that some of these newer rom-coms, they may try to take and distill pieces from older rom-coms that they really like. And I feel like there are some people who are able to do this really, really cleverly. Um, And then some people where it feels a little bit more clumsy and obvious. I think one of the best Um, movie thieves in the business is clearly Quentin Tarantino. He's stealing from old movies all the time, but he integrates it so seamlessly into his work that unless you are a huge nerd, it it completely flies by you. Yeah, I think the the positive way to spin the thieving uh, that Quentin Tarantino does is not just homage, but 
the fact that when other filmmakers do something, they're sort of adding a tool into the cinematic toolbox. And Tarantino just knows how to use those tools when and where and how. And so when he does something, it feels like, oh yeah, this is the perfect moment for this kind of spice from this movie to be added to this delicious meal. Right. And I, I want to clarify that I don't see stealing in this instance as a bad thing. Something that T.S. Eliot, the poet, is famous for saying is that immature artists borrow, mature artists steal. So I think that if you can steal something and fully make it your own, then that's a talent. That's not a detraction. Um, but I think in this case, we have a borrower. Yeah. He didn't yeah. fully steal the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that uh, Julia Roberts played this character in an interesting way where she was very aloof and guarded. So when you get that moment of pure vulnerability at the end, I think it feels really earned. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily feel like um, Hugh Grant rose to the occasion. Something interesting that I read about this movie when I was going through IMDb is that apparently um, Will's sister, that character was rewritten as his sister. Originally, there was meant to be a love triangle where um, there was the girl who worked at the record shop across from the travel book store and then the movie star. And then Will is supposed to, at the end, choose the reality over the fantasy, meaning that he settles down with the, the record store girl. But in the end, Richard Curtis changed it. And I think that that's a good change because I think that the whole point of this movie is showing that regardless of status, people are people and deserve to be treated like human beings. Yeah, I... Um when they go to the park for their first date, right? And they see that, uh, the, the memorial bench, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, oh, something about eternity or forever. And she sits down on the bench and says like, I wish I had that kind of relationship. And then she invites him to sit down on the bench with her. Like part of it was, you can tell that, oh, she's just longing for this intimate real kind of relationship but um i think like i do agree i think she pulled it off really well so instead of it being creepy like whoa lady we just met <laughs> and already you're talking about spending eternity together like i think you get that idea of just you know she's not being serious it's not like oh i really want to spend eternity with you i've made up my mind but just like i just want for one night to be able to live in that fantasy yeah, I I wonder if maybe Hugh Grant's performance suffers from the fact that he's basically a stand-in for Richard Curtis in this instance, you know, kind of like how Stephen King writes the Stephen King character. I feel like Richard Curtis writes this role with Hugh Grant in mind, obviously, but also with Hugh Grant in mind as kind of a mouthpiece for his own thoughts and conflicts about intimacy. Right. And so it just doesn't come across as cohesively. Yeah, I I thought that a lot of the a lot of the breaking up scenes in this movie were 
were just bizarre and it felt it felt like the story needed it to happen instead of characters actually making a choice to you know do something in the story like the big one for me is when Hugh Grant walks out of the apartment and there's a bunch of people taking pictures and so then he walks in and he's kind of in this like shock he's had this whiplash of like I'm a nobody and now there's a hundred reporters outside and then I mean it's kind of within character because he's a bumbling idiot oh and she doesn't believe him but yeah, then he goes, but he doesn't tell her, hey, there's a bunch of paparazzi out there. He just goes, uh, I uh, 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 wouldn't do that if I were you. Uh, uh, uh. And she's like, whatever. It's opens a, the door. That's and, just a, a, an amazing impression of you, Grant. Uh, so that, like, I thought it would have been interesting if, uh, if, like, he opened the door, saw the thing, closed the door, panicked, and then said, like, oh, Anna, like I've got to warn Anna. And then maybe he runs upstairs to the bedroom, but you know, maybe she went to the bathroom at that point or something, or maybe she's downstairs making him breakfast because while he was downstairs, she snuck downstairs and wanted to do something nice for him. And like, you know, so so a moment where he was like, I have to warn her. And then they miss each other somehow. And then she opens up the door for whatever reason, like at least something. So it's not just like, wouldn't do that that scene was really weird it just kind of felt like they were told to hit these certain marks and say these particular lines but none of it made sense in the moment yeah i i feel like again like this movie was really just the beginning of the end when it came to the 90s rom-com like people had hit the peak of what they were willing to stand for (laughs) with a rom-com and then after that said no thank you for probably the next five years <laughs> yeah uh we've had we've had a good run you've picked a lot of good rom-coms lately and so i don't know we were due for a stinker <laughs> um, <laughs> this movie just it was it, as we said last podcast like it was not for me this movie just went way over my head i, I mean it was not there- a there's definitely some rom-coms that come after this in the 2000s that are what I would, if I describe Notting Hill as the peak of the roller coaster, these are, you know, on the downhill, like Maid of Honor. Ooh, yeah. um, I'm probably going to piss off people that like these movies. 27 Dresses, um, stuff like that, where it was just so cookie cutter, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, so cookie cutter and wrote. It was just, you know matching the paces rather than doing something original. It's really interesting to watch this movie. And I actually watched another movie on Netflix um, not long after it called The Lovebirds, which was released in 2020. It It was okay. But I would say that to me, it highlighted how much the genre has evolved because whereas in 1999, the only big names in rom-coms were white people like Julia Roberts, Hugh Grant. Now you've got a movie coming out to lots of fanfare that has two actors of color in the lead roles. Also we're getting to them in the middle or the end of their relationship rather than a rom-com about the beginning. I think people are mature enough nowadays where 
And and they were in the 40s too. There's lots of remarriage comedies in that time. So it's not something where it's like, oh, finally in 2020, we're mature enough for remarriage comedies. Um, but I think that it takes a kind of finesse and boldness to say, okay, I'm not going to cast traditional, like what people would consider sort of the traditional actors or name actors. I'm going to cast comedians in these roles because they're going to have the best timing. I'm going to tell a story from the middle of their relationship rather than the beginning uh, and, you know, work in some action elements as well. So, you know, the jokes never stop. It keeps going. They hit the emotional notes that they need to hit. But overall, it's all very fun, fresh and fast versus like Notting Hill, which just kind of chug, chug, chugs along. Uh, I mean, really, that one saving grace to me is that um, that time sequence where he's walking through the market as the seasons are changing because they reuse that same motif or whatever you want to call it in um Mindy Kaling's Four Weddings and a Funeral TV show. And the TV show, that's another example where, okay, if we're talking about borrowers versus thieves, Mindy Kaling is one of the best rom-com thieves. She can take a note, uh, a piece from a movie like this one or themes from other rom-coms and then infuse them in that TV show and it works really well. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like the the people who are carrying the torch now are doing a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, there's definitely like I want to check out Lovebirds. Um, there's definitely some rom coms that I've I've been more open to lately just because of the the names attached. But um, yeah, I I think my final word on this movie would just be that I know this is a strange movie to compare it to, but for me, this movie reminds me of The Godfather. <laughs> and part I say three? that. What? Part three? No, part one. Uh, I am not a fan of any of The Godfather movies. So I know that that's, if, if anyone disagrees with my movie tastes, right now they're probably going, oh, that's it right there. Not a fan of The Godfathers. They haven't um, heard what I think of There Will Be Blood yet. Ooh. Oh, man, I like that movie. But um, So Godfather is a movie that I've watched a couple times. And every time I watch it, I've watched it, I think, three times. Every time I watch it, I think, oh, I'm just starting to get into this movie. Because I'm not a big gangster fan, mobster fan, whatever. So... I, I, it's not for me, but every time I just start to get into the movie, we, we cut to Sicily and we spend like an hour in Sicily and then we get back to the movie at the end. And I'm like, Oh my God, no, we don't need, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who could tell me why the Sicily part is fantastic and great and much needed. And one of the best things ever about any movie. But for me, I'm like, Fuck it. No, I don't care about him in Sicily. Cut to him arriving in Sicily. Look at his watch and go, okay, time to go back home. Cut to him going back home. Save an hour of the movie. Holy Christ. For me, that's what Notting Hill was. It's the moment the movie starts to gain any kind of momentum or interest for me, it just slams the door shut and goes like, nope, we're going to Sicily. And I'm like, oh, no. Like they break up so many times in the movie. And every time I just was like, 
no, I don't care about you breaking up and getting back together. Just stay together, break up once, and then you know do the do the normal thing. Like, ugh, all the breakup stuff was just. It was Sicily, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I I agree. It was. It, they went. They went full Sicily. Yeah, especially for that last twenty minutes. Oh my god. Ugh. So this begs the question: Then, who do you want to kill from Notting Hill? Oh, uh, wheelchair lady, for sure. Bell. <laughs> oh my god. She needs uh she needs a lesson in social etiquette. She she uses her time in the movie to drop some of the most depressing. It reminds me of uh Rachel Dratch's character on SNL, the Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer. Character. Oh my god. Hey guys, I can't have a baby. Hey guys, but but like, oh my god, this is not the time or the place. Holy crap, lady. That's so unfair. Oh, I that does remind me. You know how I love um, strong female characters as defined by women helping other women? If yeah. I wrote this movie, I would have written in a scene where Anna pays for that couple's IVF treatments or helps fast track them to through an adoption agency or did something to help them i mean maybe that's intrusive but i don't know i, I <laughs> maybe she's doing a movie where she needs to be pregnant and she offers to be their what do you call it host mom um surrogate or, but, yeah maybe she offers to be their surrogate mother that's a bad I don't know. That, I don't that's know. a bit that's a bit that's a bit much but I, yeah i guess i guess i see it i guess i see it it's a whole different movie um, ooh, it's hard for me to pick any one person to kill. I guess I would kill Jeff, Alec Baldwin's character. I'm tempted to kill Spike, but I love that actor. Yeah, uh, good actor. I don't actor. know how to say his name. Reese Ifans, I think. Something along those lines. Um, I've said so many actor names wrong on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought, you know, he didn't quite do it for me. I, I, I wasn't buying too much into his charm, but the scene where he sort of models for the paparazzi in his underwear, that, that was like, all right, you got me. And then at the end of the movie, when he just calls Will out on his shit, he's like, no, you're an idiot. I'm like, okay, uh, you're growing on me. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. All right, so I think we both might have spent more time on our horror pitches this week. Oh, yeah. Mine is like a full-on detailed movie treatment. Ooh, both of and mine so are pretty short. Um, you, usually, I, I, it depends on how, how, um, how much the imagination is flowing. Sometimes I've come in here and given you like down to the dialogue I want in the final scene. But um, for these these pitches I did this week, I didn't do that at all. I'm curious, though. Give me the full treatment. Let's hear it. All right. Let's go for it. So one of the things that I've said in, the, in one of the previous podcasts is I want to try to stay away from casting my movies because that's just, oof, that's a slippery slope to go down. But I wanted to cast this movie just to kind of give a better idea of like what these characters are and how they're going to act. 
And so because I can fantasy cast this movie, I can cast it with anybody that I want. So for Will, I'm going to pick a sort of older, grizzled, you know, I like those grumpy heroes. We both like those grumpy heroes. Like mm-hmm. one of the best horror a- action types of characters. Uh, and so I went with like an older Robert Mitchum, uh, like friends of Eddie Coyle, Robert Mitchum, sort of this oh. experienced, grizzled, sort of tired of it all action-y type hero. And then for Anna, I went, it's funny that you mentioned you mentioned Audrey Hepburn because I went with Audrey Hepburn. Uh, I've only oh, seen- I don't see them having chemistry at all, but it'd still be interesting to watch. Ooh. She did like older dudes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've seen too many of her movies, maybe only two, but I saw Charade and that movie is freaking amazing. Uh, and she's great. Agreed. Uh, so Anna, like in this movie, is a a megastar, but the fame is getting to her. And she has like an alcoholic husband who I was thinking if we're going with old school type people, like getting a guy who's like a, a genuine good guy and getting him to play against type. So sort of like, like Jerry Jimmy Lewis. Is, is he ever a bad guy in a movie or no? Never. He's Ooh, almost always Gordon like... Peck? Yeah, he's almost never... I don't think he's ever played a bad guy. Yeah. So I was thinking, yeah, like Jerry Lewis in Kings of Comedy or King of Comedy and uh, uh, Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West. Something that's like the moment you see him, you're like, oh, this is the good guy. And you're like, oh, no, this is not the good guy. So he's an alcoholic husband, probably beats her and whatnot. Uh, We get some paparazzi. Like there's one main paparazzi guy in general who's just a total asshole. We get the sense of obsessed fans, like obsessed fan club stuff, very perfect blue-esque. So then she goes to a small town in England where she takes on sort of a smaller, grittier role, you know, trying to go for that Oscar. And um, she goes to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting where she's kind of people watching. And it's sort of inferred that her character in the movie is like an alcoholic and has to attend AA. So she's doing this for like role research. Uh, but she notices Will eating an ice cream cone, you know, like one of those, uh, I forgot what you call them, but one of those ones that you get that are like individually wrapped and you peel off the top and it's, you know. Right, like a drumstick. Yeah, that's it, a drumstick. So he's eating a drumstick and then he throws the the wrapper out in the trash And then, uh, so it's anonymous and people have to trust each other and whatnot, but she's like hiding her face and stuff. Not because, you know, she's embarrassed of her alcoholism, which she doesn't have, but she's Anna Scott. So she doesn't want people to know who it is. So the guy who's in charge is kind of like calling her out on it, not in a dickish way, but just like in a very kind of comforting way. Like, you know, we can't, you know, we can hide from the past, but not our pain. And you got, you know, the first step is admittance and we're all here to trust each other. And so, you know, like she's getting uneasy because she, she can't reveal herself. So Will steps up and for the first time in AA meetings, he gives his story about how he betrayed his friend. And so the moment he stands up, everyone's like, Ooh, this guy will like, you know, he's, he's always here to just sit in the meetings he never shares so it's like it gets the crowd's attention uh so you know he tells this story about how he betrayed his friend and then someone says like what happened and he just you know he blows it off kind of like it ended you know very ominous and open-ended 
So after the meeting, you know, Will helps pick up for the main guy who's hosting the thing. And then they kind of say their goodbyes. And then as Will's leaving the church or whatever it is, Anna approaches him and is kind of like, Hey, you know, thanks for saving me back there. And, and Will is like, yeah, you're Anna Scott. (laughs) And she's like, how did you know? And he's like, Oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of, you know, we'll throw in some kind of like Bridget Jones's diary type um, franchise. So he's like, you know, against type again, he's like, Oh, I'm a fan of Bridget Jones's diary. And she's like, Oh, and you know, they flirt a little bit. Um, And so then she's like, can I buy you a drink? And he's like, well, I don't drink, you know, obviously AA and stuff, but she does drink. She doesn't really go to AA. So, you know, it's like her first little thing. So then she's like, well, how about dinner? Can I buy you dinner? And he's like, I don't like English food. Oh, because by the way, he's American. Uh, And he's like, I don't like English food. And she's like, uh, and as he's starting to walk away, she looks in the trash and then she's like, can I buy you an ice cream? And he's like, "Mm, ice cream? More ice cream? More ice cream? Me likey ice cream. So they go for (laughs) ice cream. They go for a walk. You know, she kisses him just like Julia Roberts initiates the kiss in this movie. And then they go back to his place. And, you know, there's like maybe he she opens the freezer and it's just full of drumsticks. Um, and then interesting, interesting choice. And then he also has a picture that, you know, like as they're sort of in bed doing stuff, getting all flirty. And he, of course, he's very grumpy. So he's like, not even like, oh my God, you're Anna Scott. Yeah, we're going to bang. Whoa. He's like, oh, I'm tired. And she's like, no, let's flirt. Ooh. Uh, and so she sees a picture of him younger with this other guy. And she's like, who's this? And he's like, that's my friend, you know, the friend he mentioned in AA. And so then she, she turns over the picture and there's a number on the back and she's like, you should give him a call. And he's like, no, you take the picture. I'm tired of looking at it. Too many painful memories. So it's like, ooh, weird. So then they go to sleep and he wakes up and there is blood everywhere and there's like oh, shit. signs of a struggle but there's no body so then there's a knock on the door and the guy checks his dresser and there's uh, a dresser drawer and there's a gun a single revolver and then he opens it up and there's a single bullet in it but it hasn't been fired so he's like shit i don't know what to do so he puts the gun away and he goes and then he's under arrest you know, the cops open the door and they're like looking around and it's obviously signs of a struggle. So they're like, you're under arrest. And he's like, I don't think that's a very good idea. So then they like pull their guns on him and stuff. And they're like, all right, put your hands up, buddy. And so then they arrest him and immediately he wants to lawyer up and then, you know, cut to him in his cell and a guy opens the door, but he doesn't really look like a lawyer. He is an FBI agent. or whatever the equivalent of that is Um, silence these lambs yes and so they go to the car and like you can tell the cops are kind of pissed because they're like that's our guy and the fbi agent is like you know obviously pulled some strings to get him out of it so they go to the car yeah so they go to the car and the fbi guy the you know the will is like I didn't kill her i don't know what happened and the fbi guy is like i know i don't think you killed her either I think you've been gone, girl, boy. I think she disappeared oh. on you, and this is all fake. And so he's like, all right. Well, he goes home, and the next morning there's one paparazzi guy, right, the one that we established earlier who's the total dick. And so there's one paparazzi guy, and he snaps a picture and sort of like <laughs> drives away or something. And so then we get sort of more of a montage type scene of um, – trial by media where you know the paparazzi guy was clued into this guy's house from an anonymous tip um 
And then as he's going home and or staying home and whatnot, you know, the next morning he wakes up and there's a shit ton of paparazzi, again, mm. more trial by media stuff. And it's like, who is he? He's got no past. The more they try to dig into his past, the more they realize like, this guy has no past. What's going on? So it, he becomes a person. Like Robert Mitchum and out of the past? Right. So then the paparazzi starts slowly disappearing. Again, another cool montage moment where maybe every day he opens his door and he looks out at the crowd. But, you know, every day it just becomes less and less people until it's just that one paparazzi guy again. And they exchange those looks and the paparazzi guy's like, eh, like he's been defeated just because pictures of this guy aren't worth anything anymore because the news cycle, the, you know, news is carried on and people don't care about it. So uh, then the next night there's a break-in. And so there's an attack. The guy goes to fight off the attacker and Robert Mitchum turns out to be very capable at disarming an attacker, but the attacker is very persistent. And so he keeps trying to like stab the guy. And so Robert Mitchum has to sort of get more and more violent with him, but he's like, stop, please stop. You're out of your league here. Like he breaks his arm, then he breaks his leg. And at one point he has to like open a, a cabinet door or something and he just smashes the guy's face. And so then the guy's like, I'm part of a fan club. And he like drops his fan club card. And he's like, there's going to be more of us. We're going to get you for what you did to her. And he's like, whatever. <gasps> he's like, I don't care. Send his, like, you guys are fucking amateurs. I'm a pro at this. Get out of here. It's like me mania. Yes. So then, uh, you know, the FBI agent comes back again. And he's like, that guy wants to sue you. And he's like, sue me. He broke into my house. And he's like, yeah, but he's claiming unnecessary force or whatever. And he's like, I kept telling him to stop. So, you know, little comedy moments there. So then the next night, there's a sound again. And it's like, oh, shit. What? So then he checks his revolver, but he puts it away. And then there's a masked man. And he lifts up his hands. And the guy sort of like knocks his hands out and there's like a flash and a sound and it almost sounds like a silenced revolver and it's like and it sort of gives this guy ptsd so so will takes the guy and shoves him up against the wall or something and then he looks him in the eye with the mask on and then you you see the guy's eyes and then he's like oh shit this is paparazzi guy so he pulls off the mask and he's like what the fuck are you doing here? And he's like, uh, you know, something. He's like, I knew I was going to catch some evidence or something. And so the guy just kind of pushes him away. And he's like, man, get out of here. And so then as the guy goes to pick up his camera, like maybe a roll of film dropped out because he's paparazzi. So he's got to use, you know, real film or whatever. Uh, and maybe Works. like a roll of film dropped out. And so then as he goes to pick up the camera, he goes to take one more picture, but then he gets spooked by Robert Mitchum because he's so badass. And as he takes a step back, this is going to be on the second floor. So of course there's like a banister and he falls off the banister falls oh. and he breaks his neck. And you're like, what? So, and again, like, this is where I thought way too hard about the movie. Cause I was thinking like how to get the guy over the banister and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But then I thought of this cool shot where the camera follows him down as the, the guy falls down and breaks his neck. And then the camera either like tilts or pans or, 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 you know, booms back up. And it goes up to the guy as he looks over the, the railing, the broken railing or whatever. And he goes like, well, shit. And then the camera goes back down. And then in the transition, it's like a cutless, seamless transition. It goes back down to where the body is. But this time it's like a police chalk outline with like evidence markers and stuff. And then it goes back up. And then it's the, the FBI guy with Robert Mitchum. And Robert Mitchum goes... 
and that's what happens. And then the FBI guy goes, well, shit. So then the next night, you know, like the place is a mess and all this stuff. So then the next night, there's a sound. Oh, my God. So he goes to investigate the sound. But this time, uh, it's someone who's calm and collected sitting in a chair in the dark and like a light turns on. Mm. And there's like a react. We see we see um, Robert Mitchum's reaction before we see the guy. And this guy turns out to be the brother of the friend who Robert Mitchum was talking about, right? And so then Robert Mitchum is like, are you here for what I did to your brother? And he says, yes. And Robert Mitchum goes, I had to. There was, you." he goes, there was no other way. And the guy goes, I know, I'm here to warn you. You need to get out. And Robert Mitchum goes, I'm too tired to run or something. So then the next night, the there's men outside and the men are a gang and there's a gang boss and the gang boss is like this motherfucker in here we've been looking for him for years he's got my money he's got my money so it's like whoa so then you know he, the boss is sitting in the car so he's he like gives the orders he's like all right man go in and get him so then a couple of heavy thug brutish guys start to walk into the place but then boom sirens cop shows up fbi guy shows up so the the thug guys like you know quote unquote act natural and they kind of like walk past the door without going in or anything and so then the fbi guy comes in and he goes like hey enough is enough we're going to relocate you because you're obviously audience can probably put this together by now you're in witness protection so we got to get you out of here because now the bad guys know where you are and we need you to be alive for whatever you know we need you to testify against this guy or something so then we cut to months later and we're now in a small American town. So it's like the, you know, the thing is like, well, at least I got you a town in America. No more English food, you know, no more fish and chips. Um, and so, you know, he's like, but it's a small American town. And the guy's like, well, you'll get used to it. He's like, I got used to the old one, you know, stuff like that. So yeah. now we get a new routine, but this guy's alone. It's the same as before. But now because he's like, he's tired and he doesn't want to go through this new life and this new routine and stuff, he's tempted to drink. Cause he sees drinks everywhere, right? It's a small American Southern town. There's drinking everywhere. So he goes to a bar and he orders a single beer, but like he doesn't look up at the waiter or at the bartender or anything. So he, he just sits down and he grizzly orders a, a beer. And so he stares at the beer and then like, you know, we do the speed up thing where it's like, he spends all night at the bar, but he just looks at the mm-hmm. beer. He doesn't actually drink it. So then, you know, he goes to get ready to leave and some guy comes in and he starts hitting on the the bartender and he's like, hey, you look familiar. You look like (gasps) someone I know. And the guy's just all grizzled and he slams his $20 down and some of the Bill Spears and he like puts his coat on and he's all grizzled. And the whole time the guy's like, I think you look like, you know, like Scarlett Johansson. No, that's not it. I think you look like Alison Brie. No, that's not it. And so then right before Will starts to leave, like right as he gets to the door, the guy goes, Anna Scott. And of course this gets Will's attention, turns around and then they make eyes at each other. And she's like, Oh shit. So she tells her part, her bartender person, like I got to go outside and smoke. And the bartender (gasps) person is like, you don't smoke. So she runs out the back and then 
we see Will approach from the back and she's uh, she's got like a gum, like she's fiddling with gum and she can't get the wrapper open. Mm. So Will takes his hands and he's calm and steady and he opens the gum for her. And then she's like, oh my God, she's freaking out. But then he's like, you need to leave town. <laughs> and she's like, I was here first. And he's like, I don't care. You need to leave. And she's like, well, I've got a family now. I've got a husband. I've got a job. And, you know, something, something, something. And she's chewing gum and it's nicotine gum. And then she's like, I'm pregnant. And my husband doesn't know it yet because it's still, you know, when you're pregnant, you can't tell people for like X number of weeks or something. So she's like, I haven't told him yet. And then he's like, listen, I don't care. Leave. And like, he doesn't threaten her, but he's just such a threatening guy that she takes it as a threat. So then he leaves and Anna goes into her purse and pulls out the picture that she had from him and sees the phone number for the friend. And so she calls the friend's house and at the friend's house is the boss and the brother and the boss is threatening the the brother kind of like, I had guys checking out that house and one of them said that you showed up the day before we did and uh, I think you tipped him off. And so the brother's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, we've been friends for a long time. And then a phone rings. And then the the boss is like, wait a minute, that's the landline. Only three people have that number, right? Me, your brother, and Robert Mitchum. So the boss walks over to the phone and picks it up and says like, Will? And then it's Anna. And Anna goes like, no, but I know where he is, right? Because she wants to get rid this of Will. Bitch. I know. Anna wants to get rid of Will because... She thinks Will is threatening him. So uh, then, uh, so uh, then, wait, I got to get this. Oh my God, there's so much to go on for. Okay, so then they meet up in public um, and Anna gets the sense that, you know, there's, there's, um, there's like, they don't, you know, they're going to do something bad to him or which maybe is what she wanted anyway or something. But anyway, she refuses to tell them where he is. So then the boss says something like, you know, or one of the guys says, hey, that's, I'm pretty sure that's Anna Scott. You know, like I'm a big fan of Bridget Jones's diary. Uh, and so like, I'm, I think that's Anna Scott. Like, you know, there's probably a lot of people who would pay a lot of money to find out where this dead mega famous actresses so he goes all right taylor and what we're gonna do is kind of like use her for ransom because robert mitchum owes this guy money right so uh then robert mitchum goes to buy groceries when he comes home from buying groceries you know like we see him open the car door and grab groceries out of the bag and then cut to like an edgar wright type cut cut to the freezer slamming shut and then he turns around and boom, there's the mob boss. So the mob boss is like, hey, I want to know where my money is. And and Robert Mitchum is like, I don't know. The only person who knew is the friend, is my friend. So then we get like either a little flashback type scene or you know something visually creative where it's revealed that the friend was doing something super bad, like you know, doing maybe something super rapey or something. Uh, and maybe, oh, maybe to the brothers, maybe he was going to rape the, his own brother's wife or something. And the only way to stop him from doing it was basically to kill him. So Robert oh, Mitchell had no. to kill the brother or had to kill his own friend 
And so that's why the brother before was like, I know, you know, that's why he wasn't mad at him. He was like, mm. it's, you know, it's tough. Life is shitty. So Robert Mitchell has no idea where the money is. So the boss is like, well, it's either you or her. Either way, I'm getting my money. So then Robert Mitchell is like, I don't know. Like, I really don't know where it is. So the boss is like, all right, fine. It's you. And he goes to shoot Robert Mitchell, but the brother shoots the boss instead. And of course, it's just like a glancing shot or a shoulder shot or something. And so then, of course, as soon as the brother shoots the boss, all the other henchmen turn on the brother and boom, he gets mowed down. And in the chaos, Anna Anna and the husband, they're there in the house and like they're tied up in chairs or something. Anna gets knocked over. So the chair breaks because, of course, Robert Mitchell only has like shitty furniture and stuff. So the chair breaks and she's able to escape. And then like fights ensue. And so Robert Mitchell has like a brawl with this gangster guy. And then uh, he's got to like, you know, use a gun to, to fight or he's got to like use a hammer or something really brutal to fight off all these other henchmen. And then Anna Scott at one point gets one of the henchmen's guns and another henchman comes up to like, you know, do something to her killer or beat her or whatever. And she goes to shoot him, but the gun is not working. So then the husband is like the safety, turn off the safety. And she's like, huh? So then she has to turn off the safety and she's all wobbly. And the guy's like, you can't shoot me. So then she shoots him. Right. And then the, the, the mob boss looks – or the mob henchman looks down at his stomach and he's got blood. So then we cut to a shot from behind the mob boss and his back is bleeding. And then he drops Ooh. on his knees and falls over. And then we, she, and then we see Anna's reaction shot. And then we cut to the husband. And the husband's got a nice little bullet hole right in the middle of his head because the bullet went through the henchman. And into the husband. And it's like, oh, shit. She oh, tragic. Right. So then Robert Mitchum beats up the mob boss. And it's very brutal and whatnot. And then Robert Mitchum somehow, or the mob boss beats the shit out of Robert Mitchum. And of course, it's like, you know, like he wants to really relish in the moment and stuff. But then the the guy takes his or Robert Mitchum goes to his hidden revolver and takes it out. And he's like, you know, I've been saving this one bullet for someone special and like you know you think because of the whole time he saved it for him but then he shoots the mob boss and he's like fuck you i've been wanting to do that for years uh and so then you know anna scott is like holy shit i gotta get out of here i gotta run and um oh maybe she's handcuffed to the chair right so she's handcuffed to the chair and then when the chair breaks her handcuff is able to slide out but in this moment robert mitchum takes her handcuffs and like secures them to a radiator or something. And he says something again, like you can hide from your past, but not the pain calling back that line from earlier. And so then she's like, well, how can I live with myself? Like, what am I going to do? So then he gets up, he goes to the freezer, he comes back and he sets down an ice cream for her on the table. And then he opens his, his and he just like starts eating his ice cream. And then you hear sirens approach the end. Damn. Yeah. You know, it's funny you you thought of Robert Mitchum. I feel like if you were to cast this modernly, I might say Vigo Mortensen. Yeah, I thought about that because of the uh, history of violence, obvious connection. And I had I also thought of Mickey Rourke because Marv. I was very influenced Ooh. by Marv from Sin City, a very pretty woman sleeping with an older grizzled <laughs> man, and then you wake up to her dead. 
you know, or quote unquote dead. That's yeah. uh, that's straight up Marv from Sin City. So, so maybe yeah. this is just my twisted mind, but I thought that you were going to reveal that the friend he thought was dead uh, transitioned and was actually Anna Scott the whole time. Oh, no, like a I, like a crying game scenario. Right. No, I had a few. I had a few stupid little ideas that I had for this movie, but um, no, yeah, I, I definitely. I the original idea that I had was going to be, you know, like her using him and Gone Girling him in the end. But mm. then I was like, you know, the second movie we were well, the second movie we released for the podcast was Hitcher. And that's a movie that I'd never seen before. And Hitcher is just every 20 minutes. Holy crap. New where conflict. is this movie going to go from here? And so I was like, you know what? Halfway into the movie, I want like a Hitcher moment where I'm like, what the fuck? Where is this movie going to go from here? And then, Just a uh, nonstop assault. Right. So, yeah. Hitcher. If you guys haven't seen it, watch it and then listen to that episode because that movie is batshit. And it's shorter than Notting Hill. Yeah, way shorter. And it feels shorter too because it zips. It just zips by. So yeah. I'm curious to know, did you go the batshit route or did you go slow burn or, or what do you got? A little bit of a combo. You know, like a lot of the movies I rewrite, I was inspired. Um, this time I was inspired by, I know how much you love concept albums. Uh, there is a concept album by this artist named Princess Superstar called My Machine. Actually, I think it was released in like 2000 or 2001. So not not that far away uh, from this time. So if people have heard that album, you'll have some idea of where I'm going in this uh, remix. Uh, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised, Brett. Oh, what was the name of yours, by the way? I didn't even think of a name. I'm going to think of one, though, and, and drop it on the podcast next week because I I just didn't think of names for either one of these. I just totally – I couldn't think of a good name that I liked, and I really like these movies, so I didn't want to shortchange them. Interesting. So I I called mine The Face. Okay, The Face. I like it. So in the borough of Notting Hill, Will Thacker lives a humdrum life selling travel books until actress Anna Scott wanders into his shop and they hit it off. She invites him back to her hotel room and after sleeping together, Will notices the number 19 tattooed on Anna's shoulder. She thanks him for the good time. They part ways. And then all throughout the next month, Will feels like he's being spied on and he imagines that Anna Scott is staring at him directly through her movies and advertisements. Uh, he also looks up a naked picture of her online and he sees a different number tattooed on her shoulder. Uh, and then that next day he gets a call from Anna and she asks if she can come over. And when she does, he immediately notices that part of her face is bandaged up. Uh, and she asks questions. She won't give answers. She goes upstairs to take a bath and lay down for a nap. And while she's napping, Will sees a live press conference on TV with Anna Scott. 
how can she be in two places at the same time? So he freaks out. He wakes Anna up and he demands to know what's happening. She refuses to tell him. Uh, and then suddenly men in riot gear break into the apartment and they capture Will and Anna. Uh, again, my, mine isn't as detailed as yours. So I, I think I would obviously flesh this out. Um, right. But uh, they capture them. They wake up in this sparse concrete room with a projection screen. And then Anna Scott appears on the screen and she just looks immaculate and perfect, kind of the way that Julia Roberts looks in that fake movie Helix, you know, where she's got her like crazy high definition bob. While Anne is napping, Will sees a live press conference on TV with Anna Scott. How can she be in two places at once? Uh, we don't know. Will freaks out. He wakes her up. He tries to ask her what happened, but she refuses to tell him. And that's when men in riot gear break into the apartment and capture Will and Anna. I, again, this is a really rough treatment, so I might add more details, amp up some more of the um, suspense. Um, but then they wake up in this sparse concrete room with a projection screen and on the screen anna scott appears and she's immaculate and perfect kind of like um how they show uh julia roberts in that fake movie helix where she's just this really remote space goddess um and then anna scott on the screen says You've been very bad, 19, and now it's time to pay the price. So the door opens, and then two Annas dressed as orderlies come in, and they separate Will and Anna. They drag her away screaming, and then they take Will to an ornate dining hall. Will is seated at a long table on one end while hologram equipment is at the other end, uh, and Anna Scott appears before him via hologram and says that she's been watching Will. Will demands an explanation, and then the real Anna Scott tells him the truth. Years ago, Anna Scott noticed that she was aging, and she decided that the only way for her to become the most famous actress alive of all time and never change would be if she uploaded herself to a supercomputer and created clones to carry on the business of being Anna Scott. 19, Will's Anna, is one of those clones. So in order to preserve the monolith of her ageless celebrity, she has transcended her human form. So it's kind of like if Mima decided at the end of Perfect Blue, she wanted to become her avatar. Right. And then that avatar became all powerful. Um, and so Anna offers Will a choice. She says that he can leave his mortal body behind and join her forever in a digital paradise. Uh, or he can leave the compound with 19. Uh, Will begins to respond, but his answer is cut off. And we cut to Will busting through an operating room and saving 19. They were going to, I think they'd started to mutilate her face and then they were going to mutilate the rest of it. Um, uh, but 
As they're leaving the compound, Anna's voice echoes over the loudspeaker yelling to kill them. And she says, I never said I wouldn't try to kill you. Um, so even it was ultimately, it didn't matter what choice he made. To right. Um, and then as the other Annas are chasing them down, things start to happen on the computers and things start, you know, acting up and falling apart um, and exploding. And as they escape from the compound, it goes up in flames, uh, killing all the clones, uh, killing the supercomputer that holds Anna. And then later, as 19 and Will are showering together, she sees the number two tattooed on his shoulder. Whoa. So really, Will decided to do both things. He chose to be digitally reanimated. Then he created a clone of himself. And as the clone helped 19 escape, he sabotaged the compound right. and killed the supercomputer. He's a smart guy. So he was a smart guy. He sacrificed, him, he sacrificed his original self. Right. Yeah, I like it. I that's so weird because I one of the ideas that I originally thought of for my horror version was like a sort of multiple actresses who look alike sort of playing tricks on a guy or something and I was like, eh, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to make this work." So, I liked your version because there was like kind of like a sci-fi twist to it. Yeah, I mean the clones are kind of unwilling participants in right. in uh, the the sort of villain's dream of eternity. I thought it would be really cool too if there was like you know a horror movie post credit sequence where maybe we're back at the burned down compound and one monitor flickers on and it just shows Anna's eyes or maybe her mouth breathing or something. Right, it would be cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, gotta set it up for a sequel. Those horror franchises, they are those horror movies live on their franchises. Well, nobody I mean, you gotta love a killer computer, right? I do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh yeah, I think I don't know if there's too much more for me to say about why I chose Stir of Echoes. Uh super scary movie when I was a kid. And what scared you about it? it when you saw it? Um I mean, I was 13, so I don't know. I think it was just the idea of the afterlife and of this person who, I I just remember it being like he couldn't control these powers and he became obsessed with it. And I remember thinking like, oh shit, the more he gets, like the closer he gets to what he's gonna find, the more danger he's in. And then of course, if you watch the movie, uh, that turns out to kind of not be the case. It's like the haunting isn't the source of his danger. It's other stuff. So, yeah. Well, I think, um, no, I mean, what you're saying makes sense. I feel like the real tension in that movie is between faith and madness because all of Kevin Bacon's behavior in the movie resembles someone who's losing their grip on reality and possibly becoming psychotic. Um, but the truth, the truth is that no, if you believe in the supernatural, 
he's seeing ghosts. And ultimately that belief is validated. Um, it reminded me a lot of a movie I love, uh, which is Frailty. Have you seen oh, Frailty? Of course, yeah. Oh, God. God damn, Frailty is so good. Um, I, I I wouldn't stir of echoes doesn't work for me as well as as uh, frailty does, but also frailty has the benefit of being a movie that was made a, couple, a few years later too. Right. Um. But uh. But yeah, I feel like like just kind of like how uh, Notting Hill had a lot of classic tropes of the '90s rom com. You had some of these 90s horror tropes, the scary kid, yeah. uh, the older black man who also has the site who he connects with. Right. Um, shining. Crazy dad, um, ghosts. You know, it, I feel like it, it hit a bunch of the marks that you would expect from a horror movie in the late 90s. Yeah, and this movie was uh, based on a book by Richard Matheson, who also wrote The Changeling, which is Ooh. an old classic horror movie. And I, be, I feel like both The Changeling and Stir of Echoes were sort of movies that inspired a bunch of, you know, quote-unquote knockoffs. It, is, it inspired a bunch of borrowers. Um, and, yeah, so I think that this is one of those movies that when I saw it as a kid... I hadn't seen a lot of the movies that borrowed from it, but watching it now, I'm like, okay, well, unlike Frailty, which kind of has like a cool twisty type ending, uh, when you rewatch Frailty, I think it still kind of holds up as an entertaining movie, but rewatching Stir of Echoes, I was just, it's not that I was disappointed in the movie or turned off by the movie. I still think it's a good movie, but the thrill of what the solution to the mystery is, is kind of, eh, you know, some of the, some of the bite is gone from that. So. Right. Right. Whereas, you know what I would compare it to where in the conjuring, when you find out the reason why they're being haunted, it doesn't detract at all from the scariness of the movie. It almost is inconsequential what the reason is it's it's still scary where once you find out the solution to the mystery and stir of echoes it you know it suddenly isn't really as as scary or spooky anymore but then they kind of bring it back towards the end in a way i i liked yeah um, it's still good it just upon rewatch failure a lot of the tension of the movie kind of evaporates um again i still think it's a good entertaining movie but the tension, like, you know, when I watch The Conjuring, I can still, like, manage to get myself in that first-time viewing spooked mood. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, with Stir of Echoes, I was like, oh, yeah, I already know what happened, so, mm, not as scary. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Kevin Bacon, he definitely does everything. He he does the most in this role. Uh, so, so let us tell the story of Stir of Echoes. So Tom Witzke is a blue-collar guy living with his pregnant wife and five-year-old son in a close-knit working-class neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, Tom, his wife, Maggie, and her sister, Lisa, go to a party at the house across the street from them one night. 
Tom makes fun of Lisa for learning hypnotism, and then he volunteers to be hypnotized. Well, turns out Tom is highly susceptible to <laughs> hypnotism. Uh, he doesn't remember anything that he did while he was hypnotized, but that night while having sex with Maggie, woman on top, uh, he begins having visions from the POV of a murdered teenage girl. Meanwhile, his son Jake appears to talk to a person who isn't there. Uh, and when Maggie needs a babysitter for Jake while she and Tom go to the big football game, Jake tells her to call Debbie because Samantha suggested her. So Tom and Maggie go to the game, but Tom keeps having these bad feelings signaled by freshing flashing red lights and objects around him. I thought that was filmed pretty well. Yeah, it was really uh, cool. And he's right to be freaked out because when Debbie hears Jake talking to Samantha, she kidnaps the kid right away, takes him to the train station. Uh, so Tom and Maggie chase Debbie down. Oh, by the way, Debbie is played by none other than uh, Liza Weil, Paris G Geller from Gilmore Girls. That was interesting. Um, so they chase Debbie down. She reveals that Samantha is her sister who disappeared six months ago and she kidnapped Jake because she believes that Tom knows what happened to Samantha. Because Tom there's only one person in the world with the name Samantha. It's so funny. Like the moment he name drops Samantha, she's like, oh my God, my sister, I'm kidnapping you. Right. I mean, I guess the idea is that she thinks that if Tom killed her sister, then Jake isn't safe there, but it's just a very half-baked plan. Uh, and so Tom denies to Debbie that he's ever seen her, her, her sister, but then he later tells Maggie that he has seen Samantha in his visions. So he begins to try to figure out what happened to Samantha by asking around the neighborhood. They're all dismissive and they just think Samantha ran away. Tom has a dream where his neighbor Frank tells him that they're going to kill Tom and Maggie. Uh, and then he witnesses Frank's son shoot himself. When Tom wakes up, he makes it to Frank's house just in time to hear the shooting and call for an ambulance. So now he's having premonitory dreams. Um, he gets more and more unhinged as he tries to figure out what happened to Samantha. Meanwhile, Maggie and Jake meet a policeman who also has the site. That was a very 1999 scene. Like, there's nothing more than 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 the. The 90s love nothing more than pairing an older black man with a young white boy. Like, I don't understand it. It's just a, a staple of the time. Um, and so uh, Maggie consults him about Tom, and he warns her that the ghost will keep bothering Tom until he figures out what it wants. So Tom asks Lisa to put him back under hypnosis again so that she can take back her hypnotic suggestion that he be more open, um, but instead it goes wrong and he gets a message to dig from Samantha, which very unhelpful clue, Samantha, very unhelpful clue. That's not actually what you need him to do. Um, but yeah. Tom starts digging uh, and then while Maggie and Jake are attending a wake, 
Tom is digging holes all over the property. He is just destroying the house, looking for the location of Samantha's body. Eventually, he finds that she has been bricked up behind a wall in the basement. Uh, and then Tom touches her, and he psychically learns the truth to the neighborhood boys had lured Samantha to Tom's house when it was still under construction. Uh, and then while trying to rape her, they accidentally suffocated and killed her. So Tom goes to Frank. He, he then brings him back to Samantha's body. Frank admits that he helped cover up the crime. And then he pulls a gun on Tom and makes Tom leave the basement at gunpoint, presumably so Frank can commit suicide. Uh, there's a knock on the door. It's Tom's landlord, Harry, and Harry's son, who's also one of the murderers. And I mean, he has a right to be upset because Tom has been just fucking up that property. Right. Um, but they come into the house. They then try to kill Tom. Maggie shows up to pick up Tom and take him to the wake. She's assaulted by Harry and his son. And just as it looks like Tom and Maggie are going to get executed, Frank shoots the two guys uh, and repeats the premonition of Tom's dream that they were going to kill you. Uh, mystery is solved. Samantha passes over. Her family is able to hold a real funeral. The Witzke family moves away from the neighborhood to start a new life elsewhere. And then in the backseat of the car, Jake covers his ears so he doesn't have to hear all the ghosts and spirits that continue to call out to him. Ooh. Yeah, classic. I liked that part. Yeah. Um, yeah, all around. Uh, very entertaining movie. Pretty short, too. So uh, this movie kind of zips along. When I checked the time in this movie towards the end, I was like, oh, we're almost there. Whereas with Notting Hill, I kind of checked it a few times. Right, but, <laughs> right. Um, go ahead. I, I liked in this movie that they did the David Lynch thing where when Tom sees Samantha in one of his dreams, you can tell that they had the actors do the blocking or whatever they were supposed to do backwards. And then what you see is that scene in actually playing in reverse when they're walking towards each other. That's why it kind of looks so weird. Yeah. I did like that. I felt so, did you feel bad for Kevin Bacon's wife? Because I felt so bad for her during this movie. At every point where she's just, hey, tell me what's going on. How can I help? I'm going to the store. He's either ignoring her or saying, shut up or something right. like that or go away. Well, I'm sure that the book probably has more of a connection between, because like, uh, Tom mentions at one point, like he was a musician, but then he sort of gave up his on his dreams to have this normal life. And there's some fighting over that. And she's like, you know, it's not a bad life. It's our life. And I really like it. And so I think there's probably more tension in there that, um, that the book has that the movie, I mean, if the movie was longer, it probably would cover that, but the movie sort of moves at a sort of, zippier b horror pace right um, right but yeah there's definitely a lot i did feel bad for her because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on and she's trying to hold it together right even her sister is like wouldn't it be the first time a mom had to hold a, together a crazy family 
Yeah, okay, Ileana Douglas. <laughs> Seriously, I, I like Ileana Douglas, daughter of Melvin Douglas, a rom-com star of yesteryear. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, her just, this poor wife, her sister's dogging on her husband all the time. Her husband is acting in a way that I would dog on to if I were right. his sister-in-law. Um, ooh, but yeah, I, I was here for every Kevin Bacon digging scene. Um, he's just looking great. Um, and, and really, he, he did a good job selling this role, I feel. Yeah, he goes... Uh... He goes pretty crazy in it, and I like I like when actors get to go pretty crazy. Yes, yes. I really hated it though when we saw the rape scene and one of the neighborhood boys asked for a helmet wash. Like, what kind of line is this? Yeah, um, I I don't think I'd ever heard that term before i mean obviously when i was a kid i must have heard it but uh i don't yeah that was a bizarre one i don't know if that was like a saying that a lot of people said or if that was just to like make these guys skis balls like another reason to hate them yeah i feel like it, it was it was meant to be that what did you think when the little kid said I'm afraid of the feathers. And then we find out that as the guys were getting shot, they misfired into the ceiling and it went right through his pillow. Uh, I didn't think too much of it. I thought, yeah, sure. That makes sense. I don't know. It made me roll my eyes. Like, really? We had to add this additional layer onto it that Jake knew something was going to happen if he came, as if he'd even make it upstairs to begin with. I know that's, that is, I did think about that later where I was like, uh, you know, that would be really weird if she was like, hey, sorry, I got to go fight off these people who are trying to kill me and uh, your dad, but uh, just go upstairs and uh, go to bed. We'll tuck you in in just a few minutes. Like, right, he wouldn't right. be anywhere near that pillow. So yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, but. Yeah, some of the stuff in this movie was a little heavy handed. Like when we cut to the moving van and it slow zooms into the word moving, as in they're moving on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I do like movies that hit you over the head with stuff like Black Swan. Black Swan just relentlessly hits you over the head. But for this movie, it, it the execution just wasn't quite as, you know, I don't know. Black Swan does it in such a way that it, you know, it it's definitely a very stylistic choice. This felt a little... A little neutered for being hit on the head with some of what it was going for. Right. You could you could say helmet wash, but in other areas you had to uh, wear that velvet glove. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm curious if you have a, a final word or if you've got a little crushy crush on someone here. I think it's very obvious who I have a crush on in this movie, and it's Kevin Bacon with those freaking Mykonos blue eyes. The, 
Cut know, me off a slab lean, of that bacon. Lean, mean body. He's kind of crazy, but he's game for that middle of the night sex, uh, unless he's having psychic visions. Um, yeah, never been cock blocked by psychic <laughs> visions before. Yeah, I can't say that I have either, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I think this is kind of a weird one. I don't think her character was particularly great in the movie, not to the kind of standards that I usually hold for a film crush, but mm. I would go with Ileana Douglas, probably because other than Kevin Bacon, who is Kevin Bacon, uh, Ileana Douglas is the only actor or actress that I remembered in this movie from when I first saw it. And she definitely leaves an impression in terms of she's unique. She's, you know, uh, she's strange looking, but she's like, she's pretty, but not in your stereotypical way. And she's, her character is kind of out there and so as like a 13 year old i was like whoa this lady is weird um but yeah she definitely like kevin bacon and Ileana douglas were some of the only things i remembered about this movie i remember the ending and i remember the orange juice but uh <laughs> that was it i didn't i didn't get that why he kept drinking orange juice I think maybe it's because he pulls out his tooth at first in vitamin C. Does vitamin C help you with bones and teeth? I mean, I would assume I calcium think. over, but I mean, water has to be more hydrating than orange juice. I noticed nobody drank water in either movie. Everybody was drinking juice, coffee, or tea. No one drank water. I don't understand. Is this a thing in the 90s, in the late 90s, everybody was dehydrated? I guess, yeah. I don't drink a lot of water, to be honest. I'm just trying to live that Kevin Bacon life. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I liked Ileana Douglas, too. She was good. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering... Ooh, a lot of options. Like, a lot of cliches, a lot of classic characters and tropes to kind of draw from and spin this off into rom-commy territory. So... Hit me with your best shot. So before I get into my rom-com, I'm just going to get this out of way. The thing that you accuse me of always doing with every rom-com reboot, I did it. I, I did it this, I did it again. I did it again, Brett. You know I, what? I'm just a, I'm a serial killer. I can't stop. <laughs> you know what? So did I. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. For this one, I've got a little bit of, I didn't go full horror like you usually do. I don't go full psychopathic murderer, but I, 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 I threw in some of the horror elements. What's wrong with a few dead people here and there? Sexy. I, I couldn't have it. But so I took this in an interesting direction. I was really curious because of that final shot of Jake in the car, holding his ears, just thinking, this is my life. I wanted to know what's Jake's life like? So I did, it's, it's kind of like a sequel to Stir of Echoes, but it's called uh, Jake Witzke versus the Afterlife. So Scott Pilgrim versus the world, right. Jake Witzke versus the Afterlife. So 13 years 
After the incidents of Stir of Echoes, Jake Witzke is starting his freshman year of college at DePaul because obviously they never moved out of Chicago. Uh, and Jake has even better paranormal sight than his father, but as a result, he's really socially awkward and then his only friends are ghosts. Uh, so one day after photography class, Jake is in the dark room when a female ghost appears and Jake is the first person who's been able to see Bridget, that's her name, and she immediately seizes the opportunity to make him help her figure out how she died. Uh, Jake is kind of a seasoned pro. He's been through this all before. The problem is that Bridget does not know what happened to her. Um, and again, this is a really rough sketch, but as they try to solve the mystery of her death, they start to get closer. She helps him um, burden himself and take life a little less seriously. And he makes her feel heard in a way that she didn't when she was alive. Uh, clues lead them to her best friend, Megan and her ex-boyfriend, Steve. Uh, and, when they meet Megan, Megan starts to get closer to Jake and uh, it also makes Bridget jealous. So we've got the dead girl, we've got the living girl and conflicts, love triangles, what's going to happen? But they all decide that together they're going to go find Steve because we got to find Steve. we got to get answers. Um, and we learned that Steve had taken the semester off after Bridget's disappearance. So they head to his apartment in the city. Jake starts to have these warning premonitions and it feels like something's wrong. So he tells Megan that it's not safe for her, uh, but he also surprises Bridget and says it's not safe for her either because there's something at Steve's place, like a pure malevolent force. Uh, Jake goes to Steve's place alone and he finds Steve all shook up. He's scared. He feels guilty. There's some poltergeisty activity going on. Um, that's oppressing Steve. We're at the, if we're going by conjuring rules, we're at the oppression stage. Um, and Jake notices the malevolent shadow hanging over Steve. So Steve tells us the truth about what really happened. After a party one night, he helped his friend Derek put a passed out Bridget in his car and then never saw her again. Derek came back later and he had, you know, defensive wounds, scratches on his face. Um, but he told Steve that if he told anyone, Derek would claim that Steve was in on it. So he blackmailed him. Steve couldn't live with it. And um, I just said that Steve poisoned Derek, um, but he doesn't know where Bridget's body is. So... We learned that it's Derek, the campus rapist, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> who is the malevolent spirit. Um, and then Jake asks Derek, uh, and that's when Derek starts launching objects at Jake and Ling. I said, the spirit smackdown is the yeah. words I used to describe. Um, and that's when Megan comes in alongside Bridget and the good guys band together to fight off the malevolent spirit. And as a result, and, and you know, I mean, we could make it into a whole cool scene. I, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we can do with it. But by the end, Derek's banished to hell. Megan and Steve are kind of on the way to reconciling. And Jake and Bridget know where her body is. 
So Jake tips off the cops and then he and Bridget watch as the scuba divers go into the lake, into Lake Michigan to search for her drowned car. And Jake asks why she hasn't passed over. And she admits that it's because she loves him. And he admits that he loves her too. And then he asks, what are they going to do? Um, and then Bridget kisses him and says, for now, forget. And Jake is confused, but Bridget apologizes as she sweeps her hand over his face, making him forget her before she dissolves. So she kind of your name style made him forget um, and then passed over. And we see a montage of Jake's life as he helps others out. Maybe he forms a paranormal investigation service. He encounters love. He grieves losses. You know, he, he lives a full balanced life and we cut to uh, his deathbed. And then last scene, we see Jake, youth restored. He's walking through the fog of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. A hand reaches out and takes his. Bridget emerges and they embrace. The end. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you've got you got some romance in there in your little rom-com slash horror movie. <laughs> I if it were really rom-commy, then I would reveal that Brit Brit wasn't dead and she was actually just in a coma. Um, but then I decided I was like, no, I'm not gonna pull any punches. <laughs> right. She's dead. <laughs> um yeah, I always try to go for the more when I think of rom-com, I think of the like you said, those early 2027 dresses, failure to launch, how to lose a guy in 10 days. I think of those more slapsticky, dumb comedies. Um, so I, I don't know why. I always just try to inject as much of that as possible into. I mean, that's definitely a lane. I, I think it's, it's the same thing with like, um, sorry, I keep saying like too much. Uh, it's the same thing, I think, with what people consider to be mainstream horror movies. Right. So there's the mainstream horror movies with the bumps and the scares and the screams. And then there are sort of the art house horror movies like uh, Ari Aster movies. Um, so I, <laughs> your face says everything. Um, there's a lot of horror but, movies that have come out lately that I just, I, I'm, I'm not calibrated for modern, like, like bold horror movies. I just can't do it. Babadook, The Witch, Hereditary, I, all of them. I liked Babadook, right but that's because it's a something's wrong with mommy movie. And right. I love when something's wrong with mommy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't know, man. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's, you know, there's like, but there's the monolith, right? There's right. the what you expect from the mainstream version of whatever it is, whether it's rom-com and then there's horror. Uh, and then the people that diverge from that formula in ways that feel really interesting and cool. I think if you see The Lovebirds, especially having just watched Notting Hill, you can see encapsulated in one movie all the ways that people have improved or twisted or or turned on the genre to make it more interesting and feel more fresh. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that movie out. Um, I mean, when I saw Kumail, I was like, all right, 
you know, I'm sure he's in a few stinkers here and there. Like, Kumail's not going to immediately sell me on the movie, but Michael Showalter, I know some of his directorial movies. Excellent comedian, though. Great, but I love me some Michael Showalter, man. So, Oh, I think he's great. And it's interesting. Um, I know, I I mean, we can always cut this out. I didn't mean to spend this time talking about the lovebirds, <laughs> but you know how you feel about Robert Rodriguez? Mm-hmm. That's how I feel about Issa Rae. Because before, um, before the show um, that she has on HBO, insecure, she had this right? insecure. Before Insecure, uh, for a while, I think... Uh, this must have been, I don't know, like early 2010s. She had a YouTube show called Awkward Black Girl that was hilarious. And it's kind of, you can see the raw DNA of what later became Insecure. But as a filmmaker, as a comedian, um, as somebody who writes situational comedies the way she does, I admire her work so much, especially as someone who didn't wait for someone to give her a shot. She just started making content. And eventually that brought her to the people who recognized her for the work she was doing. Um, But like everything she does similarly with Mindy Kaling, I'm paying attention. Right. Yeah. No, Sonia, Sonia watches Insecure. So when I saw her name pop up on Netflix with Kumail and Michael Showalter, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a movie we can watch together and hopefully have a great time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so along those lines, I I definitely, I tried to inject some ghosty type stuff, which is, you know, some horror elements. But uh, yeah, I went pretty silly with mine. So I have yeah. Tom and Maggie, of course. But the movie starts out with Maggie's brother, who is a detective. And so there's like a very tense scene. Because, you know, when you, when you go into a rom-com, but you want to make your rom-com good and you want to start with like another genre, you have to really dive into that genre. So I'm going to start with a really tense, gritty cop thriller type movie. And the brother is killed. And so then Tom and the, you know, we cut to Tom and Maggie and they have a very good relationship. Tom and Maggie's brother do not get along though. Somehow we will show that. Uh, and Tom is an, oh, here's why. Cause Tom is an ex con musician person who's on a work release and has a shitty doc job. And Maggie likes Tom despite his, you know, his, despite his criminal past. Um, but Tom has changed. He's, you know, he's gotten his second chance. He's reformed. He's a good guy, but you know, Maggie's brother is a cop and he's a cop. So it turns out that uh, they get the phone call. The brother is dead. It's very sad. Maggie was in love. Maggie loved her brother. Tom loves Maggie. So everyone is sad. Um, then uh, Maggie gets kidnapped, and yeah, so she gets kidnapped and she gets taken away. And like Tom has a chance to save her because he has a chance to shoot the guy who's going to kidnap her because maybe he drops a gun. Tom's not allowed to have one, but Tom can't do it. Right. Cause he's like, I've changed. I don't kill people anymore. Da, 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 you know? 
And so then he he's trying to get his wife and the cops aren't any help, of course, because it's a rom-com. So all the cops are doofy. So he's desperate and he goes to a hypnotist because he's thinking like he didn't see a good look at the guy's face. Right. Because he was so in shock about like, I don't want to shoot this guy. But, you know, so he, he didn't see the guy's face. So he goes to a hypnotist and he tries to um, to remember what his face looks like, but he can't do it. And the hypnotist quote unquote opens some doors. Right. So then Tom goes home and he sees like an intruder in his house. So he goes to tackle the guy, but he goes right through him because the guy is a ghost and the guy is Maggie's brother. Right. So the Maggie's (gasps) brother is a cop and he wants to help find Maggie and now Tom can see Maggie's brother, so it's like they don't get along. And now they've got to do the rom commy buddy cop thing of like work together to find where Maggie is. And so they start canvassing the neighborhood, you know, just like, have you seen some, you know, have you seen anything suspicious? Da da da. And the whole time they're just arguing, right? Because Tom is very impatient, but the brother, as a cop, has learned patience and he's dead. So he's like, Listen, I've, you know, I've learned how to be patient. I've been dead for a while. It feels like an eternity, right? Even though it was just a month ago or whatever. So then maybe they find someone who's suspicious. They chase the guy down into an alley and Tom wants to just like beat up the guy because he's like, he knows where my wife is. But um, the brother is like, that's not how interrogations work. You know, you like if you beat someone up, they're just going to tell you whatever you want to hear. So the brother has to possess Tom to keep him from beating the snot out of this guy. So you get a great little like Jim Carrey, uh, me, myself and Irene physical comedy moment where he's like fighting against himself. And nice. he's like Bruce Campbelling it up in evil dead two, where like he's possessed by something and his body is not in his control. So, you know, again, just more tension between the two. Um, Then they go to Tom's old connection, which is like an old crime buddy. And there's some disdain there from Tom. Tom doesn't like the crime buddy. The cop doesn't like the crime buddy. So they kind of start to bond over this mutual character that they dislike. And then, you know, as they start to develop their bond, they go to another character that, you know, the, the old connection points them to. And as Tom is interrogating this person, Uh, the brother who's a ghost can like walk through walls and goes like, Hey, ask him about this thing in this room. Or, you know, they go like, where, where are you hiding this piece of information? And he, you know, the guy like eyes a safe and he's like, open that safe. No. And then the ghost looks into the safe and he's like, Hey, ask him what this means. And so it's like a silly little moment where they're starting to bond together. Uh, But then Tom, like right as they get the information of where the warehouse is, where they're holding Maggie, um, because Maggie's the brother of the cop. So the cop that, um, whoever the cop was hunting, the brother was hunting at the beginning of the movie is trying to get to Maggie. Cause maybe there's something in evidence or, you know, like he needs Maggie to get to something that Tom had or to something that the brother had access to. So right before they go into the warehouse to maybe kick some ass, the hypnotist calls him on the phone and says like, Oh, Hey, sorry. Uh, you know, I accidentally opened a door in your brain and I'm getting some, some lawsuits now. Cause I've been doing it to some people or, you know, something silly where she goes like, 
hey, I got to close those doors. And he's like, no, 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 don't. And she's like, abracadabra, sim, sim, salabim. And the door closed and, and the brother disappears. So you're like, no. What? So this guy who was going to like help Tom kick some ass disappears. So Tom has to like, now Tom is feeling vulnerable because just as he started to like the brother now and work together, now he's solo and he's scared and he doesn't want to be a bad guy, convict guy anymore. So he busts into the warehouse and the fight between him and the kidnapper is very silly. And like you said, bad guys at the end of rom-coms don't need to die, but their comeuppance can just be them getting poo-pooed on. So <laughs> somehow the guy gets poo-pooed on, whether it's actual poo-poo or whatever. But in the process, Tom gets shot. Ugh, like in no. the stomach or chest or something. So then Maggie like gets up and she's like, Tom, no, Tom, no. And then Tom like phases off into the ethereal world and then he gets to have one more conversation with the brother and they like you know cement their friendship and he's like you know take good care of my sister you know and it's like it's not time for you to go yet so he puts his hand over the bullet wound of of ghost tom and then go and then tom wakes up and his bullet wound is like not like healed healed but he's like oh it still hurts but i think i'm gonna be okay and, uh, you know, it's, you know, she's like, what happened? And he's like, oh, I, you know, I talked to your brother or something. And she's like, oh, you know, something silly. And he's like, the movie ends on the line. Yeah, I was just starting to like him too. And, you know, something dumb Aww. like that. <laughs> so, I like that you made it a bromance. Yeah, I've done that once or twice. Um, made it a, a, a relationship movie. So not just like. Uh, a homosexual relationship between a guy and a guy or a girl and a, mm -hmm. or a lady and a lady. But um, every once in a while, I like to just focus on the relationship and not necessarily have my two main characters boning down. I think you point out something that to me is, is part of, you know, when you have this monolithic idea of what a rom-com is supposed to be, you miss out on the other aspects of romantic comedies that make them interesting or valuable, which is sort of the greater galaxy of relationships in a movie. For instance, in The Grand Seduction, it's not you know a sexual seduction so much as it is seducing this character into having almost a father-son relationship uh, with this other man or to have these bros you know, come together in the end. I think um, The Hangover is also a broman romantic comedy yeah. <laughs> in a way. Yeah, definitely bro-y and hanging <laughs> out and developing those relationships. Um, yeah, I just like that idea of, you know, two, like in the movie Stir of Echoes, the ghost is helping the main character sort of, figure something out and so in this movie i wanted to have mm -hmm. the ghost help the main character but it also like helps him strengthen his own relationship with his wife because he's got to go save her but at the same time it strengthens their relationship because they're they're buddy cops they're enemies and they don't get along but then they learn to like each other I like it. Yeah. I could see, um, speaking of The Hangover, I feel like I could see Zach Galifianakis in one of those roles playing against a more hunky actor type. Right. So you get a silly guy, you get a hunky guy, and then you pair them together in that setup. Yeah. Uh, 
maybe John Hamm. Ooh. As the detective. Love me some John Hamm. And he's got those comedic chops. Uh, he sure does. He's he like the Leslie like a, Nielsen of our time. Yeah, he could pull off like a very good Sam Spade spoof. I'm sure he looks the part. Oh, definitely. Mm, so I'm curious as to if you're if you usually like to love bite something related to these movies. So I did. <laughs> I you know again 1999 a landmark year for movies and unlike last episode when i restrained myself and i only chose one movie i couldn't help myself this time and i chose two so both of these movies to me epitomize 1999 the first movie which i have no doubt you've seen is election nope i fell asleep during it <gasps> You fell asleep during yeah, election? Yeah. yeah it's but such a good movie. I maybe was watching the movie with Sonia and my friend Mary Jane, and I just got sleepy and fell asleep. Um, but yeah, it seemed like a fine movie. It's a great movie, but for people who haven't seen it, Election is a movie that stars Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. Reese Witherspoon is a highly ambitious senior in high school, and uh, Matthew Broderick is her social studies teacher, and she very much wants to win the student council election for president, and he decides to sabotage her. And then what ensues is sort of this battle of wills between them. Uh, and there are also some other side characters and their stories thrown into the mix. It's just a very clever movie where high school is a microcosm of the rest of the world. And the character that Reese Witherspoon plays in Election, Tracy Flick, is one of her most iconic roles. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it She's incredible in the movie. It's funny. It's dark. It's satirical. It's cynical. Um, it, it Again, like the whole grungy 1999 vibe is just in that movie, bottled and distilled. Uh, I highly recommend trying to rewatch it uh, without MJ. Um, yeah, I will. It, like I said, it was good. I just have to go back. So the second movie, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've not, but it's called Go. Have you seen Go? Uh, yeah, that's Doug Liman's first movie, right? I think. I don't know, but Go is a movie that everybody is in that movie. Sarah yeah. Pauly, Katie Holmes, Timothy Oliphant. And I feel like Go was one of the first um American omnibus movies where it's about a bunch of loosely connected stories that all happen within the time, the same time frame to people who are friends with each other. Um, and so there's multiple stories that happen over the course of Go, but it's, you know, one of those movies that's very stylistic, style over substance. It moves really fast and poppy. But my favorite part of Go is actually one of these stories, which is, of course, the most romantic story, which is that 
Timothy Oliphant's character is a drug dealer and he gives Sarah Pauly some ecstasy to sell because it's 1999. And as collateral, Sarah Pauly leaves Katie Holmes with Timothy Oliphant and Katie Holmes is kind of a good girl. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't have sex. She doesn't do anything. And so while all the batshit insane stuff is going on in the movie, she's kind of having this weird little um, cute thing with Timmy Ol- Timothy that I can't say his name but justified right. <laughs> um but she's uh having this sort of cute interaction with them where it's opposites attract uh and I always enjoyed that part of the movie but I think that the rest of the movie is really hilarious too there's a part of the movie where a cat talks with subtitles it's, it's, it's just fun goofy 99 shit yeah I'll have to go back and rewatch it because I saw it probably sometime shortly after it came out and I can't really remember it too much but I remember it was very stylistic so yes. it's an incredibly silly movie yeah um but it's it's enjoyable and everyone is in it and because it's sort of a, a film with vignettes if you get bored with one vignette it's you know we're on to the next story basically within a few minutes yeah. Uh, speaking of something silly with everyone in it, Sonia has been rewatching Monk lately, and Ooh. I had never really seen it. She she watched it a few times a few years ago, and so I caught a, an episode here or there, but I had never really seen it. I don't know what channel it was on. It was like on USA or something, and I just wrote it off as just this dumb, silly show that was just light and fluffy and stupid. Um, and then as I started watching it, I was like, well, you know, Tony Shalhoub is pretty good. <laughs> um, and then uh, it's, Monk has the thing that I hate in any kind of detective character, which is why I think Sherlock Holmes is so dumb, which is just, yeah, pre-internet, it was pre, pre-smartphones. Yeah, knowing a lot of stuff was enough to be a good detective because you're like, oh, this powder came from Africa. So the person must've just went to Africa recently. Like, all right, what? Like, that's not smart. You're just like, no one would know. I don't know. I just don't like those characters who are just like, I know everything. Deductive reasoning characters. Uh, I don't know. Like I, characters who can make, who can figure, I like being in the mind of someone who can figure things out rather than someone just going, Oh, I know everything that happened. It was just like this. And you're like, oh, well, I, well, then what's, how's that any fun? Um, so, yeah, Monk is very much the same way. He is very OCD. He's very observative. Uh, yeah, he's very observative. Uh, now I can't say it, but he's very OCD. He's got, um, he knows a lot about a lot, but it's not so much him knowing everything and figuring things out. That's what makes the show funny. It's the fact that he is this germophobic, weird guy who's scared of everything and the situations they manage to get him in are so much fun. Like what, like, you know, it's like, oh, they're getting Monk into a locker room with a bunch of naked guys. Whoa. They're getting him onto so a submarine. So many germs. Yeah, they're getting him onto a submarine where he's claustrophobic. Whoa. Like, it's so silly. But the movie is just, it treats that 
part of it just was so much fun. And then, you know, watching it, the show does have some, some good touching actual depth moments where Tony Shalhoub actually does do some good work in it. So yeah, Monk, if you haven't seen it, I'm probably going to go back and watch more episodes because with quarantine, she's blasted through the entire, (laughs) the entire series, but. Would you say Monk is good comfort viewing? Uh, yeah, it's got a little bit more bite to it than like a normal comforty type show. But I think like, you know, those, those more heavier episodes are definitely like maybe one or two a season as opposed to every other season or something. So it's got a lot of fun stuff to it. It's mostly fun and fluff, but you know, as you start to grow on the characters and as they start to grow on you, it, it becomes really touching at certain moments. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I, I may have to to go back and and give Monk another try. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it definitely took me a few episodes to really get into it. But once you once you just let Tony Shalhoub wash you over with his greatness, <laughs> he just, <laughs> it becomes so much better. Um, yeah, you just have to accept Tony into your heart. Correct. Uh, so I have something that I want to run by you. Uh, we'll, yeah. We're, we're going to do it live. Fuck it. We'll do it live. Um, in order to encourage people to leave reviews on iTunes and other platforms, which helps promote the podcast, of course, uh, if people want to leave reviews of our remixes, you know what I mean? Like you can cast the movie however you want, assign a director, just leave a review that talks about it as if it were a real movie. Uh, you can extrapolate things, add whatever you want to it. Uh, yeah, we can probably read some of those reviews on the podcast. It'd be a nice little touch for the fans. A resounding yes from me. I would read the hell out of those reviews. And I would love to know what people thought of uh, the remixes specifically. If people did want to do that, how would they reach out to us? Uh, well, however you listen to your podcast, definitely leave a review on there. But any other feedback for the show, or if you just want to follow and hang out with us online, uh, Gmail, our email is necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook. What's that? Um, I think it's just necromancerpod, but you will find a search <laughs> necromancer. Answer, you will see our cute little stabby heart wherever our page is. Yes. Necromancer Pod on Facebook. Necromancer, Necromancer Pod on Twitter. The Necromancer Podcast on Instagram. Yeah. So reach out to us. Let us know what you like and uh, hit us up on those reviews. Get a shout out. Yeah. All right. Adios. Yeah. I feel like I should make a Y2K, my computer's going to turn off kind of joke, but I'm, I'm panicking. I'm, 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 I'm Hugh granting the situation and I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mumbling my way through it. And That's more terribly, Woody Terribly, terribly, terribly sorry. I, 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 I have to say goodbye. Hugh Grant as Porky the Pig. that's all (laughs) that's all folks
Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities. <laughs>